Kia ora, ko Anne O'Brien toku ingoa, he kaiorongi o waituhi o tamaki, no mai, haru mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers Festival Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2021 event. In your atlas, two islands not in narrow seas, like a child's kite anchored in the indifferent blue, are the opening lines to Alan Kurnow's 1939 poem, Not in Narrow Seas. Over 80 years later, the renowned New Zealand economist and commentator Brian Easton borrows it for the title of his Ockham New Zealand Book Award long-listed, wide-ranging history of New Zealand viewed through the lens of economic markers. With a strong emphasis on social and environmental impacts, he delves into everything from the geological foundation of New Zealand 650 million years ago to the evolution of the welfare state and the impacts of globalisation and deregulation. This impressive work, both accessible and comprehensive, takes its place in the canon of New Zealand history. Easton speaks with Nikki Mando. We hope you enjoy this session. Enga mana, enga reo, enga iwi, tēnā katoa. Ko Nikki Mando toko enua, tēnā katoa. I'm Nikki Mando, I'm the business editor of newsroom.co.nz and I'm super excited to welcome you to the Auckland Writers' Festival and to this session, a conversation with Brian Easton, author of Not in Narrow Seas, The Economic History of Aotearoa New Zealand. Brian is an economist, consultant, commentator. I had in my notes he's written eight books and Brian said, no, I've written 35 books, (laughs) including ones on the post-war economy, the history of Rogernomics and the role of Māori in markets and cities. Brian was a columnist for the listener for 37 years, from 1977 to 2014, a period of such huge and fascinating change in the economy of Aotearoa. He tells me he's written a thousand columns and still writes 100,000 words. This is numbers, because we're in economics. 100,000 words a year. And if you want to see his writing, it's on the pundit.co.nz blog site. Brian was director of the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research from 1981 to 86. He's a fellow of the Royal Statistical Society, a chartered statistician, and a member of the Royal Society of New Zealand. He's held all these scholarships and fellowships here and at some of the pretty prestigious universities overseas. In 2002, he was appointed to the Prime Minister's Growth and Innovation Advisory Board, and in 2005 was made a Distinguished Fellow of the New Zealand Association of of Economists. It's just great to talk to you. And before we start, I've just got this little tiny story about this book. So yesterday I was at the Ai Weiwei um, talk upstairs. I cycle in, I leave my bike, tied it up, where I do all the time, and I left my book, because it was quite heavy, in um, in the basket. And when I came out, my bike is gone. So, and my book has gone. Now, I have this theory. I've parked that bike. I've had the bike for years. I've parked it up there dozens of times, and it's never been stolen. The only time it gets stolen is when Brian's book <laughs> is in the pannier. And I have this idea that they dump the bike round the back somewhere, and there's someone who's back in Ponsonby reading this book right now. <laughs> That's how good it is. <laughs> anyway, I don't know whether I have to remind you to switch your phone off. Don't stick around if you feel unwell and wear a mask if you want. If you are using social media, do it discreetly and respectfully. Anyway, I know Brian, because he wants to talk about the book, but I, so I thought of a way that I could just briefly talk about Brian. So I'm going to call it questions about your own social, cultural, economic and historical context. So <laughs> could you start with where you're born and what was going on at the time, where you, you know, when you were born and what was your childhood like, just briefly in your social, historical, and economic context. <laughs> um, well, kia ora. Um, can I just say, I don't come to Auckland often. It's a lot of friends here in the audience. I can't see you because of the damn lights. <laughs> and even more important, there are people in the audience who work with the book. And in fact, this sort of book I write, although there's one person on the cover, it actually reflects the work of an awful lot of people, and you should all be up here on the stage, but we'll forgo the logics. I was born in Christchurch. I was born in a state house. I was born in 1943. Um, And quite honestly, I had a very 
conventional childhood. Um, they were, um, I'm just reading a book which describes the time as the golden years. Uh, and um, nothing ever has exciting has happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were post-war, post-war Christchurch. What was that no, like? No, 1943. So I, I grew up in Christchurch. And I, I mean, see, I don't remember it being different from what I expected. Um, <laughs> you know, um, what was going on at the time economically? You wouldn't have been remembering it then, but what was happening in New Zealand at the time? What happened is in the Second World War, um, we had to deploy an enormous amount of resources to sustain the war effort. Probably about half of total output was being used to sustain the war effort. Uh, which meant that people were being held back from consumption. Um, and by the way, a half is about the same as anyone else of our sort of countries. After the war, um, of course, there was the liberalisation. But the problem was that the um, that people had all these savings, you see, promises. And um, so... They took their savings and said, now we can spend it. And the government didn't explain it quite so clearly, but their savings had been used to um, um, build bomb holes. So if you wanted to convert your savings, all you had was a bomb hole. So we had a period in which there were very severe restrictions and high inflation. And there's a sense that economically the war didn't start, finish until 1955. I mean, so that's, it was just a period of fairly tough. It wasn't as tough on us as it was, say, in Britain, and certainly not in Japan or Germany or Holland. They all suffered very greatly, but we, but we actually had a, a relatively um, uh, restrained time. Unemployment was very low. When I started the book, I was told that um, there were only two unemployed, and the Minister of Unemployment knew both their names. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out that, in fact, unemployment was a bit high, about 26. <laughs> but there were two people on the unemployment benefit. <laughs> I Just a quick thing. I, you talked about milk deliveries in a piece, and you had a theory of, you know, when we had milk bottles delivered to our house, yes. you had a, a theory of, a market theory about milk bottle deliveries. No, well, actually, we're skipping now to when I started economics, and there, uh, we had this marvellous textbook by Paul Samuelson called Principles, and he says one of the interesting things about um, economics, and it stuck with me all my life, is that each morning I go out and get my milk, but in fact, there's been a whole chain of decisions, and I don't know that the farmer or the cow or the trucker or anybody in that process. And it's a very simple example of how a market coordinates a whole series of decisions. And it's one of the reasons why I have been always more supportive of the market than many of my colleagues, um, because the milk arrived every morning. Then along came Rogernomics, and... <clears throat> They, um, they were very pro-market. And they, of course, abolished the arrival of milk in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you decide to become an economist? Because you were brilliant at maths, weren't you? Your maths was your, um, your real strong point. Uh, although I, I was a very good mathematician, even at school, but um, one of the things that distinguished me from a lot of my classes, I did a lot of reading. And I tend to read non-fiction rather than fiction. So I was reading a lot of non-fiction, and that moved on to reading um, economic, political and social theory in the late 19th century. And so I got an interest in that, I got an interest in politics. And when I was at a university, to be honest, we're all as mad as hatters. We're doing this course, an honours course, and we all decide we want to do an extra course. And I couldn't do statistics because um, I had to do German and reading knowledge and it clashed with statistics so I did economics now there were other precipitants I'm, I went to a, um, a, con a Congress Curious Cove and um, Bill Such spoke 
And Bill Sutch was a charismatic speaker and really impressive, and I thought I could do better than him. <laughs> <laughs> That's youth. And the other speaker was um, Wolf Rosenberg, who I knew very well later in life. And Wolf talked about the dangers of being an economist. I must have fallen asleep. <laughs> anyway, so I, d I did Economics 1, and I was enthralled um, by the lecturer, Alan Danks, by the textbook, and also I was already beginning to import some of my mathematics into economics. What was economics? What was economics like at the time? What sort of what theories were people working on then? Well, they're basically all the same theories. Um, the, um, I, I mean, uh, it was very traditional economics at that time. Was um, I know supply and demand, the Keynesian cross. As the professor used to say, that's another cross to bear. <laughs> um, uh, but what was just happening at that time was that um, mathematics was beginning to invade economics in a way that it had not in the past. And this was really a post-war development. Uh, Samuelson, although it was a superb textbook written in English, was a very good mathematician. Um, by accident, I was reading other very good math mathematical economists. So I sort of straddled to the old paradigm and the evolving paradigm. But we're talking about the same economy. I just want to ask you one more question before we get onto mm -hmm. the book. Um, because you're one of the most influential economists in the country. You're also... Could I have that in writing? <laughs> <laughs> and through your books, through your columns, but you've never, you've always stayed independent. You've never yeah. gone to work for Treasury or the Reserve Bank or, and I imagine that that's impacted on how much money you made for a start. What made that decision to stay as an independent thinker and writer? Well, really I wanted to be an academic, but uh, during the height of Rogenomics, um, I'd, I'd, been a, I'd been a teacher at a university, at two universities for about 15 years. And that, I then went to the Institute, where I left really because of pressure from Roger Gnomes, and then um, the universities wouldn't let me back in teaching. And I remember actually a very sad day when I decided I had to delete the word teacher from my passport and replace it with scholar. I mean, I've always wanted to be a teacher. And there's a sense that um, the way I think about uh, listener columns is um, as a teacher. And, it's, and, and sitting behind this, within, within the profession, there are some people, um, and you read a lot of them, who don't care about what the economics is, they know what the answer is, you see. And I always want to go a little bit deeper and find out why things are happening. I was actually at school and university trained as a scientist, and my interest is why do things happen? What are the deep processes going on? For instance, I just talked about inflation and the war. Well, every book you talk about talks about inflation and the war, but they don't explain the inflation. They don't explain it in terms of people having savings met by bomb holes. And, and this brings us beautifully onto the book, because you do explain the sort of physical things and the economic things and the political things, and you put it all in together. Um, and oh, I suppose I have to ask, why did you decide to write a, a big book like this? A, a, you know, the, a history of even a small country. It's, you know, it's still a massive work. Um, look, I've been reading New Zealand history from probably primary school. And I read a lot of history. I, just, I didn't notice it at the time, but if you go to my website, which is not pundit, I have a separate website, there are 300 items on history. Um, and if you look at some of the other books, they are historical. And partly because I always want to look a bit deeper, I always go back, uh, I always go back into history times. Now, what happened was I'd written a book um, called Globalization and the Wealth, Wealth of Nations, which got very good um, support from colleagues overseas. So I went, and it was funded by the Marston Fund, so I went back to Marston and asked for some more money because I'd have to go overseas and do the work. 
And Marston basically said, look, we're not really interested in the future of the New Zealand economy and how it connects with the rest of the world. We've got far more important things. <laughs> I, don't, I, I mean, that really is how the system is going. So I had to do another project, and I guess the history was always there. Why it was a big history? Well, um, New Zealand's a bigger place than you think. <laughs> Tell us about the title, Not in Narrow Seas. It comes from a quotation from, um, from Alan Curnow. Uh, when Alan Curnow was um, first writing, he was writing a lot about the history of New Zealand. And um, it's quite interesting to look at those poetry. And it's very, very Christchurch, and I came from Christchurch. And I chose the title and, um, really because always, the, remember about five or six books before I'd written a book called In Stormy Seas, which is a macroeconomic account of the economy. And it always seemed to me that um, people's visions were too narrow when you want to write about history. So the real thing is I'm saying this is a very open, wide subject um, in which I draw on all sorts of experiences I had, and, and I had to learn something. I had to learn a lot of geology, actually. Because I, 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 that's amazing. When I would have thought of a history of economics, I would have started at people. You know, I would have kind of gone, oh, well, the history of economics in New Zealand starts when the first people came to New Zealand. But that's not where the book starts at all. Well, I always knew, because I had an interest in it, that the history of New Zealand was very tied up with the environment. And I knew the environment would come into the story as I wrote it. I might say I began writing before the Christchurch earthquakes, so I didn't do much about earthquakes. Um, but um, I really had two problems, um, which are actually central for understanding New Zealand. One is, why are we the shape that we are? And the answer to that, and, and that, why that's important is because, quite frankly, if you were designing a country to be for economic reasons, you would not choose a long, straggly, <laughs> high mountain place. And indeed, if the history of the 19th century, and indeed going into the 20th, is that we are very isolated communities. Um, and it's only over, over time that we integrate the economy as a whole. And that integration is still going on. The government proposal to abolish DHBs is a part of that integration process. Just shows you. Did you know that in the, 20, in the 19th century, there was something called the New Zealand death? Drowning. It's because people used to drown crossing rivers. I mean, that was the sort of society we were in. So why we were the shape we were, and it turns out that we're this long, struggling thing because we were much butt up against Australia. And we're actually the erosion from the Australian craton. And that drives you back to 650 million years ago when the craton began erosing. And there was a second reason which um, puzzled me. If you look at um, a, a key year in the... Uh, book is 1966, in which the war price falls. And the New Zealand economy tanks, and the Australian economy takes off. And it actually takes off faster than the OECD, and you think, what's going on? Well, it's actually the mineral boom. And I thought to myself, why don't we have a mineral boom? So I went to see a geologist by the name of Graham Stevens, and he explained to me it was the difference between us, them being a craton, and um, we being eroded material, and we don't have um, the same minerals being pushed up from the earth that the, um, um, that the Australians have. Now, we are due for a mineral boom in about 300 million years. <laughs> um, <laughs> Treasury is not putting that in the effect. <laughs> and and, and we, we were always short of minerals. We even had odd things that happened. Like, for instance, we do have volcanoes, and that geology, that's interesting, but our volcanoes tend to bring up the wrong sort of uh, minerals. Um, and the, 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 the really good volcanoes uh, are in Auckland, so rather than making that a market garden, <laughs> we build houses on it. But that's actually the place where our market gardens should be. And, then, and the story of of the environment keeps coming back and back and back again. So I'll tell another one. Um, I'm working in the late 19th century, 
and I'm looking at um, Māori. Now, to understand the late 19th century, um, there was a bit of a, a debate going on, which I think I've probably cleared up, which is that one view was that it was a period of the Long Depression, and the other one was a rather short depression. You know, we economists have these differences. Now, it turns out that the Long Depression is actually what happened in the south of the country. It was tied up with the wool economy and being dependent on... Um, uh, on um, on um, borrowing from London. The, the Short Depression occurred in, in Auckland, which never had any wool. It was a... Um, it was the business centre of New Zealand, and business was actually built around gold and kauri gum and, and kauri. And one of the reasons why um, Auckland is the sort of business community it is today is if you're mining hard rock gold, you have to have a particular building commu um, business community. You have to have shares, investment, lawyers, and all that. So we now have an explanation of what's going on. But the next question is, <clears throat> why didn't, um, uh, given that you've given up market gardening, why didn't, what, weren't there any wool, any sheep in the north of the North Island? And I noticed this, and I'll tell the story in terms of the Maori. Um, what happened was that in 232 um, um, of the Common Era, um, Taupo went up. And it was one of the biggest explosions ever that we have a record of, certainly in the last um, 10 or odd million years. And the crater, do you know what the crater is? It's the lake. I mean, it was a big crater. <laughs> now, um, remember I said that it had the wrong minerals. And the wind was coming from the south, and it blew into the north and the northeast. The debris, the... the um, uh, the, 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 I'm sorry, I've forgotten the term for it, didn't contain a key mineral called cobalt. And when we put um, uh, sheep on to those lands, um, the sheep didn't thrive. We call it bush sickness. Okay? And that's the reason why there were no sheep north of Taupo, with the exception, another reason, was that the Waikato River... Um, used to go through to the um, uh, the, the Thames, uh, the first of the Thames, but as a result of the earth movements, it turned west and followed the track that I did. Well, the river just wasn't there. It had to find its way out, and it's an enormous swamp. And what's a swamp? For a sheep, it's foot rot. So north of... of um, of Taupo, there is no, there was no sheep uh, growing at all, except over on the East Cape. Um, there's another story. Um, now, <clears throat> but fortunately, you did have the Hard Rock Mor uh, uh, Gold, uh, gold uh, quarrying in the Coromandel, and you had the Kauri and the Kauri gum, and that kept Auckland going. But the Maori actually, most Maori lived north of Taupo. And when the great economy, the great boom in, in, um, in uh, sheep is going on, most Maori cannot get into sheep simply because they're in the wrong location. Nothing, nothing about us, be Pākehā or anything, they're just unfortunately in the wrong location. You get this quite nicely. If you look at the size of the um, Maori sheep flocks in the South Island, they're roughly the same size as the... Uh, European sheep flocks in the South Island. It's just very few Maori there. And indeed, even today, Kaitahu is one of the most personally wealthy people. And they had opportunities, you see, which the North did not. One final bit of the story, remember I said it went um, uh, North and East. Um, and one of the places where bush, um, bush sickness was really severe was in the great forests to the east of, of Taupo, which were um, oh, uh, for, uh, to Faratoa. And so we put pi um, pine plantations there. That's where all the kind of pine plantations come from, okay? But 
and and that's where we have the Kinleys and, and Carlisle and all those places. But now we know about cobalt. But those pine uh, plantations are being replaced by sheep plantations. And again, that's why Tuwharatoa is a relatively um, uh, wealthy uh, iwi. It was that the land was so useless we didn't confiscate it. <laughs> One of the things that I was interested in was that we that sheep was almost a an afterthought when when the the Europeans were coming they didn't want sheep. Um, the, well, the story is um, that if we talk about the Wakefield settlements, which are uh, a Wellington. Um, Wanganui and Nelson initially, Wakefield wanted to replicate English um, farming, English class system in New Zealand. And his vision was of crops. And so you would have farms which would crop and they'd have workers in a nice little class structure. For various reasons, the cropping didn't work. Um, the land was not really suitable for cropping. Uh, it took an awful lot of time to break it in, uh, very expensive to break it in, and you had the stumps and so on. Now, just offshore, there were the, the, the um, Australian sheep farmers. And um, Whitefield didn't like them because they were uncouth. <laughs> you know, Australians also had that reputation. And when Wellington started, uh, within a couple of years, the sheep farmers from Australia came across. They would be Brits who'd passing through. Okay. And they began finding a place where you could put sheep. Um, in fact, at one stage, sheep was grazing in Lambton Key. We're trying to get back to that. Um, <laughs> but they went into the Wairava, they went into the uh, Wanganu. Um, remember, they did it in Nelson in the... Um, Wairau incident was about finding more sheep land um, and in fact the sheep farmers took over and I think it was in 1842, 1843 there was an election um, from the people in, uh, in Wellington for the council and, the, and, and none of the snobs that Wakefield had voted got elected, it was all the sheep farmers. <laughs> so that's where we started and basically from the 1840s, with a few except, with the exception of gold, sheep is the dominant, um, uh, wool is the dominant economy right through to 1966. Because one of the things that you talk about is that we as uh, sort of useless historians, I, I was always thinking about the Britain's entry into the EC, the EU, um, as a turning point that, you know, not necessarily an easy one for New Zealand, but you don't see that as a, actually as an important point at all, do you? It's a part of our history, but um, the government played a dirty trick on you. <laughs> our position was that Britain should enter the European, uh, what was then became the European Community, now the European Union. And if you scratch their back, that is still our position that, that Brexit shouldn't have happened. But they had to go in, but protecting our interests. So we're doing the negotiations here, but we're getting all you to get terribly uptight about it will be the end of the world. <laughs> because you then wrote to, to Britain and told all your friends that it was going to be the end of the world, and that put a lot of pressure on the, on the British government. In fact, we had known from 1958 that Britain was likely to join the European uh, community, and we had already begun the big diversification. And in fact, by 1972 or 73, we were much more diversified than we had been in 1958. So we weren't unprepared. We were much more ready for it. But um, and we were trying to, of course, screw as much as we could out of the Brits, um, as you would. But basically, we thought they should join the uh, community. But they sort of played a, almost a trick, didn't they? The, the negotiators in, who were in London doing those negotiations, they almost kind of said, right, well, we're going home, we're not getting... And they got a better deal well, than the, they the thought. The actual story is actually negotiations in Brussels. And the, um, 
European, at the time it was the EEC, I mean, it just changed its name. Um, the representatives were there, and the Brits are negotiating. The guy was Geoffrey Rippon. And our Deputy Prime Minister, Jack Marshall, literally slept in the room outside as indication of how important it was. And eventually Rippon came and said, um, look, um, uh, I've got you 50,000 tonnes of butter. Oh, that's an interesting story. Um, we decided to sacrifice cheese for butter because we thought we could offload cheese into other markets, but butter was the really big thing. I, I've always thought that, and I, this may sound funny to today's New Zealand because we all talk about milk powder, but in those days it was butter and cheese. And, um, we thought we could sell off cheese, but we couldn't find new markets for butter. I always thought they should have put it in the bottle of a, um, the bottom of a, a bottle, and um, put um, alcohol and shake it up and sell it as Irish. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, he said fifty thousand, and um, Ribon and Marshall said, "Is that all you can do?" And Marshall said, um, "Ribon said, yes, it's a pretty good deal." And Marshall said, if that's as well, I suppose if it is, I'm going home. What he can say? Nothing. And to go home from Brussels, he had to fly through Heathrow. And he knew that at Heathrow, there would be um, lots and lots of um, journalists, particularly from anti-entry um, papers, I think the Telegraph and the Mail would be the big ones, wouldn't they? And they would say, what do you think of the deal? And he'd say, no comment. <laughs> and that would tell them that, in fact, we were bloody angry. Um, so Ripon said, well, <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> and uh, he um, went back and came back with an extra 5,000 tonnes, 55,000 tonnes. And that's how, we, and that's how Marshall did a, a brilliant job on that negotiation. And I might say, because history's always written very badly, it wasn't just Marshall, it was the team of diplomats working around him. And this, although Marshall's dead, it's the story I've just told you is, is their story. And instead of the, if the EU entry of Britain into the EU isn't the big thing, what do you think is the really big thing that happened, external thing that happened in the New Zealand economy? Remember I said in the uh, 1840s, wool be becomes our big export. By the way, um, if this is a Wellington audience, I'd tell you all about Wales, but I won't. Um, the, uh, and that lasts through 1966. Now, in 1966, the price of wool fell 40%, and it has never recovered. In those days, 40% of our export revenue came from wool, and another 20% from sheep. So 60% of our total exports was built around the uh, crossbed farmer. Today, I think the figure for wool is 0.1%. <laughs> I mean, so that was the transformation, you know. For over 100 years, wool had dominated the economy and suddenly it collapsed. Now, what happens is when your terms of trade fall, you're, um, you actually have a fall in your incomes. And um, so the farmer's incomes collapsed. And we had an arrangement in the way the economy worked that we were, um, I'll simplify, it's in the book in more detail, but essentially what was happening was that we were transferring the farmer's income to the workers. And then, of course, they didn't have that income. So we had a fall in the total income of the economy. And for the next 20-odd years, we have to adjust um, to that lower income. And basically, we played the game of uh, pass the parcel in a Belfast pub. Um, you can take the cut. No, you take the cut. And we passed it on and on. We went through a very high process of inflation. And eventually the Roger names came in and they simply brutally cut the incomes of the poor uh, while maintaining them of the rich. And that solved that problem and created another. <laughs> Can we stick Muldoon into the middle of that? So he came... Um, I, I love this... <laughs> uh, 
at the end of the book, you talk about ideas. You write that ideas matter, but how they are used matters more. And you quote American journalist um, H.L. Mencken, who said, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. <laughs> and I suspect that you probably put Muldoon's Think no, Big no, and certainly Rogenomics into no, that. No, there's actually... Muldoon was actually a lot smarter than you think. And he knew he had problems, but he always found that if he tried to do anything, he had to um, affect people, and he didn't like doing that. Remember, he got elected uh, in 1975 with a huge majority. He actually lost the 1978 election. He knew he was on a, on a, a margin. The reason he won was the peculiarities of the electoral system. But in fact, Rowling scored more. And Rowling scored more in 81. So he knew he was on a fragile uh, place. And he, he was desperately trying to find a way through the shambles. And he didn't, because he wasn't willing to brutalize anybody, whereas, as I say, the Roger names were. What did he do? What did he do right, and what did he do wrong? Oh, right. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> I mean, there's a wonderful story about Muldoon, um, told by his um, chief of staff, Gerald Hensley. Muldoon understood the problem of the Springbok tour, but he was politically trapped because his party had first of all objected to Kirk calling it off in 74, wasn't it? To, what? 73. Thank you very much, 73. <laughs> and, he, um, and he knew he was very dependent upon pro-tour people. And he knew, and so what he tried to do was manipulate the rugby union to call it off, and they didn't. And he, um, he gets the message. In Gerald's story, he said they won't call it off. And he sat on his table for a long time like this. And he said, nothing good's going to happen. He, I, 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 he knew that there would be the great riots we had during the Springbok tour, but he couldn't deal with it. And we often forget that prime ministers have much less power than you think. And, and Muldoon all give the impression of very great power, and they pretend they're great power, and we always want to believe they have great power, but actually they very often have, um, are, are trapped by a whole lot of political factors. Um, so, Roger Nomax, we, you've talked about it a little bit, but that was obviously a, a huge thing for New Zealand. And for you, you've talked a bit about that as, a, as an economist, as a, one of the few people that stood out consistently against, well, we were all business journalists and economists and politicians. We just took it hook, line and sinker, I think. Um, after the war... When I started writing the book, I thought the key event for the post-war economy was the Depression. Um, I changed my mind writing the book. It was the war. During the war, we had these extraordinary controls. Um, and they're probably necessary in, during a war for various reasons. But after the war, we didn't liberalize very much. Um, there were various bouts of liberalisation, but relatively restrictive. And we could do that because of the favourable terms of trade for the wool. For wool. When the wool want, we had to start um, uh, carrying out a major economic liberalisation. There were other factors as well. Um, during that time, diversity increased. Um, you know, you like coffee, I like tea. Um, somehow we have to provide both in the same market. Women went to work, married women went to work. Do you remember the big row we had over um, uh, shopping hours? Well, you don't, because, <laughs> but we had an awful row. And the, the point was that women going to work, they now had to shop out of um, ordinary hours. So there was this liberalisation pressures. Um, another one was the movement of the Maori into the cities, which these are all covered in the book, by the way, uh, Pacifica into the country. 
So we're becoming a very much more diverse nation and it's very much harder to control. So one thing we simply got, the complexities of um, the, uh, of the economy making it very difficult. Same thing happened in Eastern Europe. One of, the, um, one of the things that people at places like Hungary had to change their economic management was because centralised controls didn't went any work. So the, 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 the Roger Gnomes initially started off with a lot of uh, liberalisation. Actually, just to give you an example, we have price controls on bread. All a good thing. We're in favour of price controls on bread, aren't we? Um, unfortunately, the way they worked, they prevented um, the production of French bread, Danish pasties and so on. Remove um, <clears throat> the controls and suddenly they all start blossoming up and the life they do lead was um, very different from those controls. Well, they began, the, the Longinones began that liberalisation. It was going to be difficult and initially actually did pretty well. And then they went mad and they began doing things I couldn't understand it if you actually look at the record and for an economist I'm one of the easiest people to track because you can go through the list of columns initially I, I, they seemed to be wrong and I couldn't work out why and I thought they must know something I didn't do so I went hunting I read lots and lots of literature and I couldn't find it uh, the evidence of what they were doing would um, would work. So that's and so what do you, what's the obligation if you know something? You tell people. Um, a lot of people um, found got smashed. I mean, I got smashed too. Um, lost jobs and so on. Um, but a lot of people hid. Uh, we don't actually have a history of very strong uh, speakers outside there. Remember also. Many of the best economists in the country never appear on newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> Treasury officials. Treasury officials generally are very, very able. Um, so you Any Treasury officials that want to write for us, absolutely no problem. <laughs> <laughs> At your end. <laughs> um, so, um, uh, so I'm talking to economists. A lot of them know there's, that there's gross stupidity going on. Um, but I ended up on front. You, you called it a, a deep and self-inflicted wound on the economic, in the economy, unique in history. Were there times when, when we could have done it, when we could have moved? Was there a fork in the road where we went this way and we should have gone this way? Were there, were there key, key points in that time? The reason why Rogernomics is unusual is if you look at the history of New Zealand, about a third of the time the economy stagnated. Remember that a third of the time, we may be in one of these stagnations again. I don't understand. I, there are indications, but I don't fully understand the story, so I'm not talking too much about it. But every previous stagnation was the result of an external shock. The Rogernomics uh, stagnation was unique in that it was actually self-imposed. And we had a period from 1985 to 1995, basically, seven to 10 years, in which the economy did not grow at all. Now, you're not allowed to say this publicly because that might imply that Roger Names got it wrong. But um, that's what happened. Indeed, it was worse than that because the Roger Names protected the high-income people, their incomes continued to grow and they never understood that what was happening to the rest of us. There were people whose standard of living in 2002 was the same as in 1982. They went through 20 years of stagnation. Um, the details are in the book and the, you can cross-refer to the, the learned articles that are written there. Um, but that... But that Rotonomics is unique. I can't think of any other occasion in which we say severely self-inflicted. So there were other occasions. There's a wonderful case in the um, Asian crisis in 1997 or 8. And we've got the records of the Reserve Bank. And the Reserve Bank is fooling around with an equation uh, which is 
obviously for a mathematician, wrong. I mean, you know, there are just easy ways you can tell a, uh, an equation's wrong, and that was. And they're trying to use it, and they decide in the end to contract the economy. And we contracted, and the Australians didn't. And that probably, I won't say it cost the National Party the uh, election in the um, couple of years later, but it certainly contributed to the rather poor performance of the National Party in the election. And the really nice story is how forgiving a people we are. <laughs> the person who led that unnecessary contraction was um, Don Brash. And <laughs> so he joins the National Party and becomes their leader, having actually, un <laughs> having screwed them. <laughs> you talk a lot in your book about inequality um, and the rise of inequality, and it's sounding like you're saying it started with Rogenomics, but it didn't stop there, did it? How have we got to the stage of having such an unequal society? Well, just to be clear about it, in the post-war era, which is as best I can go back, although there's some evidence, only a little evidence, about going back to 1926, inequality is falling in New Zealand at least on some measures. There's all sorts of caveats in there. I'm a scholar, not a majority, um, uh, um, a preacher. And then in the 80s, it stops. Now, it is possible that that process would have uh, stopped anyway. But the Rogenomes changed the rules. When we talk about inequality, um, it's very clear in the data. I just put a, a pundit column which shows that under Rogenomics, um, actually under um, uh, Ruth and Asia, um, uh, child poverty doubled. Okay? Um, and what they did is that in order to protect the rich from the, the mess they were making, they actually. Um, had to, it would have to be paid for by the poor. Now, that changed the, st uh, the tax structure, and basically inequality has been much the same since then. There is, uh, people go on as if there is rising inequality. Um, there isn't. It, and I've, I've gone through and I've tracked this quite closely. Look, there are things going on I can get uh, detail. For instance, if you look at the top 10%, the top 1%, haven't, their incomes haven't risen relative to the rest. Uh, complication, some of them go offshore, and, you know, I mean, the, the, but if you look at um, from one down to, to ten, you find some rise, and I think that is chief executive salaries um, that's going on there. That's the best I can locate them. Anyway, where was I? So, basically, inequality, um, market inequality has been constant since 1995. After tax quality has been constant after 1995, there is a caveat. Um, you may remember that the government um, uh, fixed benefits to prices, not wages, so that the share of beneficiaries has been going down. It's there in the data, you can trace it. But basically, there hasn't been a big change since then. We come from a tradition which says, and comes from Marx, that capitalism causes inequality. It's not the evidence, by the way. Um, so we actually believe inequality is rising all the time. Just one thing you're going to say, what about wealth inequality? Well, we don't have the data. Um, therefore, we can be very strong and sure about what's going on. <laughs> um, but one problem that's going on with wealth is that interest rates are falling. <coughs> and that will put up the price of wealth. And, I, you know, if I had a blackboard, I could do it for you, but I shan't. Um, so the, 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 the wealth inequality is rising. But the big does anyone know the big source of wealth inequality? Wicked capitalism, no. It actually is because you get old. And you don't have any wealth when you're young. And then you prepare for retirement. And there's a, a clear pattern of... Um, uh, inequality um, um, of wealth accumulating the rich so um, among the elderly. So when we talk about most of the people being um, not having much wealth, that's because they're young, not because... 
you know, I mean, you, you, but the, the, the New Zealand spirit is to exaggerate if we can possibly can. Keeps you get on the front pages. <laughs> <laughs> We've, we actually haven't got much time if we want to have some questions. Um, is there something about the present day? You know, how optimistic are you that the present government, freed from the the rigours of having a coalition partner, freed from some of the those sort of MMP issues, what would you be doing if you were Jacinda and her government? People often ask me if I was Minister of Finance, what do I do? And the first thing is I would resign. <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the stories of the book is that while things happen in New Zealand, look what's happening offshore. And that's the reason why um, it's only on chapter three that we have anybody in New Zealand because I wanted to go back and talk about where the, where the Maori, the first Polynesians, came from. And so chapter two, for chapter one's about their geology, chapter two is about the sorts of life they lived in, um, in Pacific Islands. There's a comparable chapter, by the way, about two comparable chapters about Europeans. There's a chapter about Pacifica. In other words, people come um, to a country with baggage and to understand us, you have to understand the baggage. Now, the same thing happened. Remember when I was talking about our stagnations? We all blame the stagnation on Atkinson or whoever. But in fact, um, it was happening offshore. Now, what we, the world does not understand, except for the, for the self-designated experts, what's actually going on in the world at the moment. There is an argument, and that's really something that doesn't belong to the book, but um, that, in fact, we're going through a period of secular stagnation, a long period of really no growth, and I can, I can put up all the arguments for and against. So that's the first thing. Um, so how we adapt to that. Now, one good piece of news is that probably food prices are going to continue to rise. Um, that'll cheer you up no end. I was just reading this morning, um, climate change is going to destroy the potentiality of the world to produce crops. So we're in there, mate. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, I don't know what this government will do. I don't think it does either. But... Um, but really will be shaped more by what's going on overseas. And if you want an example of that, can I use a five-letter word? COVID. You know, that was nothing to do with us, but by golly, it reshaped us. Can I call for some questions? Do people have questions? New Zealand economic um, commentary for a little while. I find that most commentary fudges and equivocates on one basic point, which is, is the nation's chronic low productivity um, uh, the, the precursor of um, uh, wealth inequality, or is, does it uh, happen the other way around? Is it the wealth inequality and the social conditions of that that leads to chronic uh, low productivity, or are there no correlates between the two? Um, the first thing is that it's not clear that there is low productivity. Okay, and I can give you a lecture on that. If... <laughs> no, I can't. Um, the low productivity, insofar as we have a productivity problem, it's partly we're in the wrong industries, it's partly because we're too small, and it's also because we don't do enough work um, uh, upgrading the skills of the workers. But, you know, the myth is that we're low productivity, the reality is, when you start to look at it carefully, it doesn't work. Yeah. Thank you, Brian. Uh, you talked about people holding back on consumption during World War II. Would you please comment on the necessity or otherwise of degrowth in a well-being economy for a livable future? Uh, sorry, a what sort of growth? Uh, degrowth. For a, in a well-being economy. I've never um, used that term, so I'm not right. quite sure what you mean. Are we talking about not needing growth anymore? Yes. Oh, well, Thank you me. know, I mean, 
that sort of ethics, and I'm not very good at ethics. Um, what I can say, it is quite likely that we will go through a period of stagnation. And you need to be, think very carefully about that stagnation because things will happen. Um, for instance, during the Great Depression, um, all sorts of things were happening, including, for instance, films. So we may actually have, even though the growth indicators are flat, um, we may still less have rising uh, well-being, and that's how we handle it. Uh, it's a, something that's interested me that I, um, there was a debate between Kate Rayworth and Arthur Grimes about that very thing. Kate Rayworth doesn't necessarily think we have to have growth. Um, and Arthur Grimes definitely thought that she was talking rubbish. Well, I'm not going to defend either of those um, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Um, one of the things about an economy is it's like a wobbly bicycle. And what economists know is that if it doesn't go ahead, if you don't go by ahead, you fall off. So what actually happens during a period of secular stagnation, a uh, world secular, secular stagnation, is I want to be clear about that. When we talk about secular stagnation, we're talking about rich countries only. We expect a lot more growth, though slower growth in China, India, and Southeast Asia, and so on. Yeah, I have a look. Hello. Yeah. Um, I arrived here in 1974 and with the rolling years, and it blew my mind, and I stayed. And then, of course, Muldoon got in. Um, I'm wondering, you hadn't mentioned it, but I had the impression that part of our problem started with the deep borrowing that had to go on um, when England joined the E. You or the commission or the community? Anyway, we lost our we lost our market in England, and Muldoon borrowed a lot. And then my impression was, and I really want to know this one: was Rogernomics uh, a New Zealand version of the Chicago School of Economics? Um, answer the second question. Very influenced by Chicago School um, of Economics, which you know is a very right-wing economics. Totally. However, you need to know that there was not a single Treasury um, economist who was, uh, had been trained at the Chicago School. Um, Treasury had one person who had been trained at Chicago. Um, he was the minister, the pastor, and he lived with me. <laughs> 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 It was influenced also by Reagan, by Thatcher, all that was going on oh, there. Yeah. Now, your first question, I'm sorry, I've... Well, th that... The our, the did did look, our problem look, start with when we lost our market in, in England um, and we had to start borrowing heavily with Think Big? No, it, no. it wasn't that way at all. It wasn't. Um, the, 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 the heavy borrowing in 75 was to get us through a very rapid... Uh, uh, change, but the the borrowing actually is fairly steady, um, but it changes. For instance, until 1985, virtually all the borrowing was done by the government, and then the government abandoned that. Was under Rogernomics, the government abandoned that, and this is related to. I'm sorry, we really don't have time for it, but the change, what's called the Smithsonian Agreement, and the whole change of the world economy. But our big borrowing problem actually starts in um, 2002, which was when uh, Bush began opening up the cock uh, tied up with the 9-11. Uh, and we began heavily borrowing there. The banks began heavily borrowing. And um, so it's in 2008 two th um, uh, that we suddenly find ourselves heavily overborrowed in deep trouble. Incidentally, just to warn you, I don't know everything, and I, <laughs> um, and I didn't pick up this particular trend for a while. But the interesting thing is nobody else did either, and the people who should have picked it up were the um, bank economists, but they weren't because their banks were making money out of the borrowing. But um, so we do have a borrowing problem. It's um, sorry and. I've simplified it and you simplified it. Uh, it's domestic borrowing and external borrowing. Um, and if we had time, we haven't. 
We probably don't have. We probably could get one more question if there is one. I'm curious as to how you come to the conclusion that inequality in New Zealand hasn't changed. I mean, I'm thinking of Max Rashbrook's book on wealth in New Zealand and also his book on inequality and other commentators in, an, in terms of the fact that 50% own 95 plus percent of the wealth in the country and 50% own less than 5%. Um, and I had also thought that if you don't have the social supports to buffer, provide a buffer when you fall over, either as a younger or an older person, because of the lack of resilience within your family structures, particularly your extended family structures, you are likely to stay in poverty for longer and not get out can and you say, be can true. You, we've got 18 seconds. Could you? Well, the first answer, the second thing is I was arguing that in the 70s. Nobody listened. Second issue is all very well Max saying these things. The data does not support him. The data says there's inequality. It does not say that inequality is increasing. Look at the data. I would say look at the book myself. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk to Brian, to have you as an audience. Thank you. Go well today. Tanakwe, you've been listening to a podcast from the 2021 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi or Tāmaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.